0: Please just leave me alone. There are times we all want to say those words to someone. We could add a few ideas, I'm sure you could add some to mine, but probably have felt that way about a telemarketer once or twice in your life. Please just leave me alone. It might be a pesky child now and then, or a family member with whom you are upset, even a faithful friend who offers correction we are tempted at times to say, please, just leave me alone. Sometimes we even want to say that to God. Please, just leave me alone. This is particularly the case when God calls you to do something outside your comfort zone, something you know you cannot do in your own strength. You may never actually speak the words But you would really like God to just leave you alone. God seems to specialize, in fact, in calling us to do things we really don't want to do. Or to do things we feel feel ill-equipped to accomplish. And we can imagine then how Moses felt as he stood barefooted in the desert trying to recover from the call of God that had just been placed upon his life. We find Moses in Exodus chapter 3, tending his father-in-law's sheep near Mount Sinai at the southern tip of the desolate Sinai Peninsula. We read in chapter 3 and verse 1, we find ourselves really in the middle of that account here in chapter 4, so let me just review with chapter 3 at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God known later in this book as Mount Sinai. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, that rocked Moses' world. It was a wonderful idea about God wanting to deliver Israel, but me? You want me to lead the Israelites out of slavery, out of their bondage, their bondage to the most powerful nation on earth, God, look at me. I'm a shepherd. I haven't walked in Pharaoh's court for 40 years. Who am I? God ignores the question entirely. Verse 11 and in verse 12 says, I will be with you. As the conversation continues, God reveals that He is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. Let's keep that in mind as we look through this text today, for it's so vital. He is Yahweh, the God who is there, the God who will be with you. Moses, it's not who you are that matters. It is who I am that matters. I will be with you. You can trust Me to enable you to do everything I command you to do. I will go with you verse 15, this is stressed. We see the stress also upon the fact that He is the Lord, the God of the the fathers of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We see that phrase repeated in verse 16 when He says, Go to the elders of Israel and tell them that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has called you. And I have promised, verse 17, to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth always keeps his promises, and that means that Israel must be delivered out of slavery in Egypt and returned to the land of Canaan. Now Moses rejoiced to learn all of this, all that God had proposed. He loved the idea, I am sure, of Israel being delivered from Egypt. He's having a much harder time with the idea that God wants him to lead the exodus. As Moses tries to clear his head and ponders God's heavy call upon him, certain concerns, might we say certain objections, begin to arise in Moses' mind. And in the dialogue that follows with God and Moses between these two, we will find that God graciously equips Moses for the task to which he has called him. It starts with signs for Moses. Moses anticipates an authority crisis as he hears this call, verse 1 of chapter 4. He answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? After 400 years, God has appeared to Moses and has commissioned him to this task of delivering Israel. Moses knows this. And God knows this, but Lord, says Moses, the Israelites do not know this. They are not going to believe me just because I tell them that I've met with you. The Hebrew text, it's a bit of an interpretive call here, but the word if is really not even in the original text. It's a faithful way of reading such grammar. But the word if is not even in the original text. It may be more that Moses is saying they will not believe me. Or listen to me. They are not going to believe that the Lord appeared to me out here. We need to appreciate Moses' situation. It has been 400 years since God has spoken. 400 years, as far as we know. Much longer than that, since God had prophesied that Israel would return to Canaan after 400 years in Egypt. Genesis 15 and verse 13. Now Moses is going to emerge from the desert where he has been for 40 years herding sheep and he is going to come into Egypt and say to the Israelites, God has spoken to me. And he's thinking there's going to be some people saying, Moses, you've got a little too much sun. You've got to be kidding me. This long and God speaks to you out in the desert. God has already told Moses that the elders of Israel will listen to him. Notice verse 18 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you, God has said. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. But he will, at the end of verse 20, let you go. God has given Moses a guarantee, a prophecy, that he will succeed in this endeavor. But Moses says, I don't know, they're not going to believe me. He does not exactly know how he should persuade them that God has, in fact, visited him in the desert. He's not forgotten their rejection of him 40 years earlier, and he has no interest in reliving that pain. Exodus 2 and verse 14, Acts 7, 12, and 35. He has been rejected. Well, God responds by giving a sign gift to Moses in verse 2. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The question is not because God doesn't know. He's trying to focus Moses' attention on his staff. What is that in your hand? Take note of it. It's a shepherd's staff. The Lord said, verse 3, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Now herding sheep in the desert for 40 years, you get pretty used to snakes. I don't think Moses is probably very afraid of snakes at this point in his life. But he is petrified at the idea of a stick turning into a snake. And he runs from this snake. It is real. It scares the life out of him just about. Then God says something more, verse 4. The Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Don't try that at home, right? That is the last place you grab a snake is by the tail. That allows its mouth to be open and for it to bite you. You don't pick up a snake by the tail. Moses knows this, but he has to trust God and he does what God says and grabs it by the tail, the middle of verse 4, so Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. Well, God's got his attention. And God has given to him something to get the attention of the Israelites. There's a lot more going on here than probably meets the eye. I mean, this is phenomenal in and of itself, miraculous and unique. But there's something also that's going on here that may miss us. I think, first of all, God strikes at the Egyptian snake charmers of the day with this sign. They were able to charm snakes so that they froze in an erect position and looked almost like a stick. They could hold them by the tail, and they would stay stick-straight. I don't know how they did it, but there are snake charmers who do amazing things with cobras and the like, and they were able to do this with these snakes But God can actually transform a real stick into a real snake and back again. That is going to get the attention of the Israelites living in Egypt and of the Egyptians. I think God also strikes here at the cobra goddess, the patron deity of lower Egypt where Pharaoh's throne was situated. The Egyptians worshipped the snake as a goddess of wisdom and healing. The powerful and deadly cobra then became the symbol of Pharaoh's authority and power. You can look through various pictures of Pharaoh, of some of the helmets that the pharaohs wore. You can look at some of the carvings and the great uh, images that were made. And you notice often on their helmets, there is a snake. There's other things there as well, and some of them don't have this, but almost every picture of a pharaoh, there's this something in the middle of their head on their helmet, and often it is a snake. It was an image in Egypt of its great power and of pharaoh's great strength and might. And, and I think that God, in part, is really aiming at this image and is showing what? He is showing that God rules the cobra goddess of Egypt. His representative can safely pick the snake up by the tail. It is a direct challenge to Egypt's authority and worship. In verse 5, as we pick up there, This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. We notice this continual phrase, chapter 2, verse 24, chapter 3, verse 6, and verse 15, and verse 16, chapter 4 and verse 5 here, this continual reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can't miss the significance of this. This miraculous sign was given to Moses to authenticate his message to Israel to show that he was part of God's saving plan and of his promises to the patriarchs. God gives this sign to Moses to say that he is God's authoritative spokesman. But God is not done yet and gives to Moses a second sign, verse 6. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Leprosy was a widespread, highly contagious, dreaded skin disease in that time and place. It was also incurable. No earthly power known to humanity at that time could cure leprosy, but God can And this was then a sign of his power. It also serves as an ominous reminder that God is sovereign over disease. Egypt is going to learn that truth in the future. God gives a third sign to Moses at verse 8. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. The Nile was worshipped in Egypt as the source of life and fertility. God would prove to Israel by this sign that He ruled supreme over life, and He rules supreme over Egypt. This sign would also serve as an ominous prophecy of God's first judgment upon Pharaoh. God is beginning to move. He's beginning to act in Israel's situation, and He provides His deliverer these unique signs. Each of these three signs demonstrates God's power over nature, particularly. None of these three was given to entertain the Israelites or Moses. Each was given to validate God's messenger as he delivered God's message and performed God's mission. This is a crucial note. The whole point was to prove to God's people that God had spoken to Moses. Moses feared that the Israelites would not listen, but God equips his spokesman for the task. He was now armed with proof that he had met with God. But another objection arises in Moses' mind. Moses has been equipped with signs. He is secondly here equipped with a speaker, beginning at verse 10. For Moses is concerned and says in verse 10 to the Lord, O oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Slow being literally heavy. My tongue is heavy. My speech is heavy. There are various views as to what Moses means here. Some people think that he had a speech impediment. He was incapable of really speaking normally. Others say that he's simply saying he's not a gifted orator. He's not really able to handle that part of matters with Pharaoh. Others would see it as an excuse, which seems to be indicated in part by Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, which says that Moses was well-educated and that he was powerful in speech and deed. So you have to deal with Acts 7. in some way as you look at this passage. He was capable in speech and deed. Now Moses says something here that misses us perhaps, perhaps missed you, but you notice there in the typeset of verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, what's the typeset that you see there? L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Remember from last week the meaning of that. That is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the name that God has revealed to Moses in chapter 3 as being the one who will deliver Israel from Egypt. He is Yahweh. He is the one who is there. The great I am. Yahweh says to Moses, Moses says to Yahweh, O Lord, now you notice there the type set changes, doesn't it? He uses a different word, and it is almost humorous in this passage that Moses continues to steer clear of the name Yahweh. He doesn't want to use that concept that God will be with him and uses just the more generic, simple statement, Adonai, Lord, Lord, I have never been eloquent. The Hebrew text also puts special emphasis here in this verse upon Moses' use of the word I. Remember back to 3.11 and 12, what was Moses' concern? Who am I? God ignores the question and says, the issue is I am Yahweh. I will be with you. And similarly here, he says, I cannot speak. And that is followed by God's reply, similar to chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. God responds here in 4.11 by saying, notice what the text of Scripture uses. I believe Moses wrote this. Many don't, but I think that he did. Notice what he uses. The Lord, Yahweh, said to him, verse 11, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Yahweh says, The issue is not who I am, Moses, but that the great I am is with you. That is speaking for Moses. It's not about who you think that you are, but it is that the great I am is with you. It is a lesson that Moses will eventually learn, and learn well. We note here, don't we, in verse 11, we can't skip by it. And that's an easy thing for some to do, to just skip verse 11, and really not deal with the implications of this statement. This is a profound statement, and we have to come to terms with it. God says, Is it not I who make man's mouth, who makes the deaf or mute, who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I the Lord? This is a strong statement on the sovereignty, the ordaining will of God. It says to us that no infant is born blind or deaf or unable to speak or with any other physical malady apart from the sovereign will of God. That's what he claims here. Now, sin is the cause of all such tragedy and all such malady. God did not create a world in which people would suffer such horrifying trials. He created a perfect world, free of all malady and dysfunction and disease. Physical malady is the consequence of life in a fallen world. However, such suffering always accords with the permissive will of God. Why does God will such suffering? We cannot ultimately know. All we know is that every such condition is intended by God to bring Him glory in the eyes of His people, including especially those who suffer such maladies. Why is a baby born blind? We see in the hospital a little baby girl held in her mother's arms this very morning as the doctors hover around and try to find out why this child's eyes are not working. Why does God ordain that? Why does He permit such trial? We don't ultimately know. But I think looking at it from God's angle, we might begin to see a window into the purposes. This woman is forced to live for 85 years in utter blindness. But what is that if God knows that she is going to live for 85 million years and then some with perfect sight, which she appreciates in glory more than anyone who had perfect sight in this world? We can't answer ultimately for God and ultimately why such trials take place. We know the cause of sin, but we also know that behind it all is the will of God And he uses such trial for his glory. All we can know now is that God makes people deaf and blind and mute for good and ultimate purposes. Moses, if I made your tongue, I am calling you to use it to speak to the elders of Israel and to Pharaoh, and I then will be with you. Verse 12 Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. I will be with you. As Moses feels the weight of this mission settle over him, he speaks with chilling honesty in verse 13 when he says, O Lord, you see the word used again, Adonai. God continues to say, I will be with you. Is it not I, the Lord, Yahweh, Moses, Adonai, please, send someone else to do it. Please, God, just leave me alone. Do it, God. It is a wonderful work you propose, but please, use someone else to do it. Adonai, use someone else to do it. God is slow to anger, the scriptures teach, but Moses' reticence to honor God's call peaks God's anger here. And in verse 14 we read, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. Moses' brother Aaron had recently escaped slavery in Egypt and was presently traveling across Sinai Peninsula to meet Moses. Moses' heart must have leaped at the thought. God is angered with Moses' lack of faith. Yet, he graciously equips Moses with someone to speak for him. This is how the relationship will work. God lays out verse 15. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. So Aaron will not do all of the talking nor will he always know what to say. But God will equip both men by teaching them appropriate words and appropriate actions. God is going to go with them, and they are going to go. God knows this, and it is to this that God calls him. Verse 16, He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. This is foreshadowing of the whole ministry of the prophets. The prophets of Israel would serve as the mouth of God to the people. Moses would serve as God to Aaron. What does that mean? As a prophet speaks God's words, so Aaron would speak Moses' words. Thus, Moses would be functioning in the role of God in this relationship. I know there's a lot of younger brothers who think that they're God to their older brothers. That's not the point of this. It is simply meaning that he would be in the place of God putting his words into Aaron's mouth and Aaron would be the communicator largely for Moses. Verse 17, God gets back to the point. And really there's no more to say on Moses' part and so God says, take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. God is not going to negotiate with Moses any longer. It's time to move this simple shepherd's staff will play a significant role in Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Leaning on that simple staff, Moses will learn to lean on the power of God, and God's people will break free. God will use him to do that. And in all of this, what is God saying and what is he doing? In all of this, as in all of God's saving purposes through time, God is pointing to the final Savior, Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 18, we read these words, I will raise up for Israel a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. There will be a prophet who will come, who will receive directly from God the words of God and proclaim them. Acts chapter 3 and verses 20 through 23 say that that prophet is Jesus Christ. I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses, and he will speak the words of God. Moses comes with a word from God to deliver God's people. And so Jesus would come with a word from God to deliver his people. He would be the word of God. As God called and equipped Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, he was pointing us to the ministry of Jesus Christ, who would lead the great exodus of his people out of the realm of sin and death. And it's interesting that like Moses, as with Moses, God also gives miraculous signs to Jesus as his representative. You remember Jesus going to the Jordan River? going to identify with the message of John the Baptist and to be baptized there. And as he is baptized in the Jordan, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and God speaks from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It is very parallel to a burning bush in the Sinai Peninsula and to the message of God that I will be with you. Jesus also, as God's representative, receives this attestation of the voice of God. It is a distinct calling for Christ as it was for Moses. And there is also with Jesus an equipping with sign gifts. Jesus did not perform miracles to draw crowds, or to show off, or to entertain, nor primarily because he had compassion for people. Jesus performed miracles. They did draw a crowd. And he did have compassion for people. But he performed miracles. Why? Because God equipped him with these miracles. He equipped him with the power to perform them in order to validate Jesus Christ as God's messenger, with God's message. God had put his word in the mouth of Christ. And the miracles were a sign to say... This is God's message from His messenger. You remember how often Jesus brought this out? Remember the account of the paralyzed man. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He doesn't say, but that you may know that I have compassion for this paralyzed man. Which He did, but He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that I may draw a crowd here and be able to preach to more people, which it drew a crowd, and he was able to preach to more people. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. I say to the paralyzed man, get up and walk, and he did. We think of this when John the Baptist doubts whether Christ is the Christ. Tell John what you see and hear, says Jesus. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. The prophecy of Isaiah that this one would come and perform these miraculous signs. He was doing it. Luke 7:22. There is, of course, a point of great contrast, isn't there, between Jesus and Moses. We see the Deliverer raised up and called by God and identified. We see the Deliverer equipped with miraculous signs. But we see in Jesus Christ the Deliverer who hears the Word of God and willingly submits. There are no excuses. There are no complaints. There's no, please use someone else, Father. Obviously, Jesus and Moses are distinct and Jesus is one with God. But nonetheless, we see his obedience, and let's not write it off and say, well, Jesus is God, of course he's going to obey the Father. Go back to Gethsemane. That night, as Jesus cries out to his Father and says, is there another way? Will you deliver this cup from me? Jesus goes forward. He obeys the Father. He submits to the hard call and he trusts the hand of God to the end. You know, those of us who know Christ as Savior today, we carry forward Jesus' mission. We do. Us, in our weakness, in our frailty, with our slow speech and our slow actions, we carry forward the mission of Jesus Christ that he began long ago, that he carried out through Moses, that he carried out through Jesus Christ, he carries out through us today. And this is where we get weak knees, isn't it? We wonder if God might not just leave us alone in all of this. Well, let's go back to the familiar words. He doesn't leave us alone. We feel like Moses almost standing before God as we look at Matthew 28, 18-20, as he lays out his call, very familiar to us, To Moses, it is go and deliver Egypt. What is it to us as God's people carrying on the mission of Christ? We read in Matthew 28 and verse 18. Let's think of it clearly. There are many parallels. Jesus came to them in Matthew 28, 18 and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There's a thrill in that for those who know Christ the Savior, that the mission of Christ goes through all nations to all peoples, It's a worldwide project, and we are thrilled with that notion. We rejoice to see people trust the gospel from all nations and tribes and languages. We thrill to hear of those who witness the truth of Christ crucified and risen. I am anxious for tonight. I'm anxious to hear our brother Audress as he comes from another part of the world and shares the gospel ministry in that hard land and of those that are responding we love it but then God says I want you to proclaim this gospel I want you to be a deliverer and that's where we begin to be tempted with that phrase Please, God, just leave me alone. Leave me out of it. It's just not me. I'm simply not that gifted with speech. I don't know what to say. I get all confused. I don't know how to bring people to Christ. Did you notice in verse 20, gave me the chills to read it. Did you notice what he said there? I am with you always. It's exactly what he said with Moses. Yeah, yeah, but you know, Moses is Moses. He's that great guy back there. Did God ever say to Moses, it's about you, it's who you are, it's how great you are, it's how skilled you are, you're so uniquely qualified here having gone through Pharaoh's court and through the desert for 40 years? God never says that to Moses. He says the issue is, I am with you. And he says the very same words to us. Yahweh is our God. He will be there. He will equip. He will enable. The problem is, we're not always sure we want him to. But what matters, we must understand, is not who we are, but that we are in Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, who is ever with us. We are one with Him through saving faith. So I ask this question. If you had a choice, I mean, honestly, in your mind, if you had a choice, I can receive the signed gifts of Moses. And I can have those gifts and walk out into this world and share the gospel of Christ. Or I can go into this world just as a Christian to share the gospel. Which one would you choose? I am in Christ in the one scenario or secondly I'm God's child I'm not in Christ but I have the signs of Moses let me tell you you'd be a fool to choose the snake stick deal you'd be a fool as powerful a sign as that is if I grabbed this microphone stand here and held that up there and turned it into a snake let me tell you people would be real interested We probably couldn't fit in this building next Sunday when the word got around. We can turn things into living animals and back again. I want to tell you that would be nothing compared to the fact that Jesus Christ dwells within you and is with you when you share the gospel of Christ to an unbeliever. I am with you, he says. United by faith to the risen and reigning Christ, you have more power and more divine equipping than Moses had. But I don't have any signs. Some have tried to say that there are those signs that are taking place today, and they have to really work hard at that. There's just not a whole lot of people paying any attention. Because they're really not there, I don't think. We say this, we don't have the signs. We should be able to walk into some place and raise the dead and heal the sick and maybe even grab that microphone over there and turn it into a snake so that there's a sign that people know, hey, this person's from God. Why don't we have that? Here's where our thinking gets so corrupted and confused. We do have it. It isn't us. But we have the miracles of Jesus, we have the miracles of the apostles, and we have above all else an empty tomb. We have the ultimate sign in history. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That is our sign, that is our message, that is the historical power and the miraculous sign that is needed, more than is needed, is all sufficient to say we have the message of God. Like Moses, we naturally look at our own abilities and find them lacking, for the task to which God calls us is a supernatural task. We are carrying a message of salvation to those who are blind to it. And it is, we know, a very difficult message to believe. Simple ideas, but extremely difficult to trust. But we have an empty tomb that backs us up. Jesus promises that he will be with us. The risen Christ is with us. And yes, there are times when we stumble. We all need to grow through practice as we share the gospel of Christ and make a difference in this world for him. But God, who made our tongues, is fully capable of guiding our speech to say what we should say. I know so often, I tell you, I know, Eden Baptist Church, what it means to talk to someone about Christ and to walk away and say, you idiot, there is no one on earth that could have been saved with that bungled message. I mean, just, it's just ridiculous. There are times I talk to people and it's just, it just doesn't flow. It doesn't come out right. It doesn't sound right. We have this glorious message of salvation. I know what that's like. But by the grace of God alone, I also know what it's like to deliver the words and they go like arrows right at the heart. You know there are times when God uses your words for his own purposes and they're not really ultimately yours. He works through his word and he convicts the heart. I had a unique experience this week of getting locked in a cell with a man that was in isolation in an area prison. I was asked to speak to him. He was in bad, bad shape. I had about 10 minutes. It was a bit unnerving get locked into a place, they're having so much trouble with a guy, there's nobody else in his cell, and they lock you in the door and kind of leave. I mean, they're close, but they aren't close enough for my comfort. It was amazing to sit down on the bed of this inmate and just to say, with ten minutes, the gospel of Christ. And it was as if God took every word and just drove it home. One phrase after another, one point after another, no preparation, no knowledge of what I was going to say. God just took the words, and he can do that with his word. Not knowing if that man would make it through the night or what would take place, I did probably what I wouldn't necessarily always do, but I just pressed the point with him. And in simple faith in his own words, he called out upon Christ to save him. And I know I didn't set that up, I didn't ordain that situation, and I know the words weren't mine alone. God can use our words. There are times when I'm almost convinced he gets our words all mixed up and messed up because that person's not ready for him yet. But there are other times when somebody is in need and somebody is ready and the gospel of Christ gains free reign in their heart through your tongue. The problem is not the gospel. And the problem is not the power of the gospel against which the gates of hell cannot stand. The problem is we rely on ourselves and we refuse to walk in faith upon the God who raises the dead. We go in the power of the risen Christ and we yield to his words and to his leading to deliver that message. And we all ought to say as we look in the mirror, who am I? I'm no one. I don't have good speeches. I'm not great at rhetoric or debate. But I carry the message of Christ crucified and risen. And that message has its own power. It can go to the heart. I've seen it. Many of you have seen it. And many of us have seen it from the other end, haven't we? There was a time in your life, particularly those who were older when they came to Christ, where you know that experience of saying, God, please just leave me alone. The gospel of Christ is proclaimed. His death for sin and His resurrection power. And there is in that message a call to repent of sin and to turn to God, and you say, I don't, I can't do it. Just leave me alone. Living like a Christian, I can't do it, and it's overwhelming. Please, God, just leave me alone. Let's remember this, whether whatever side of the equation we're on, whether those who are believing in faith in Christ and called to this great mission, or those who know Him not as Savior, the answer is the same. It's not about who you are, it's about God who is with you. What you need to do if you're in that situation today is to trust Him and let Him give you the power to live for Christ. You can't live the Christian life in your own strength In fact, that's a very important thing to learn. But what you need to come to understand is that Jesus Christ has made the full provision of sin. He has paid the penalty of your sin. He gives you life through faith in His work as you come in trust and reliance upon His righteousness. You can't live the Christian life alone but you can trust the hand of God who will be with you. We call you to that today as he does. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our Father, for the reminder of your wisdom and truth and goodness to us in Christ. We give thanks for the reminder that it's not our power and who we are that brings the gospel home but it is your power and strength. As you equipped Moses, so you equipped your son, and so we walk in that equipping. We walk with an empty tomb to proclaim your power and the power of the gospel. We thank you, dear God, that you bring sinners to a place of saving grace who call out to you in their need and that you bring those of us who know you as Savior to courageously and faithfully proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. Grant us opportunities. Please open the doors for a witness. As we contemplate celebrating the resurrection of Christ this next Lord's Day, as you give us life, I pray that we would bring people along with us to church. I pray that during this week and in the weeks to come, that we would be faithful in witness to others. May we be wise in knowing when there is an opportunity and when we are striving to create one in our own strength and power. But may we also realize where fear and the natural desire to mind our own business are in the way of what God wants to do, of what you, Father, want to do through us in the name of your Son. I pray, God, that you'll help us to discern that and to grow in our capacities to proclaim the gospel of Christ. May we sing for joy to the Lord now as we close. May we lift up our song of praise to you as we seek to proclaim to you our worship and then use these same tongues to carry out the message of Christ crucified and risen in this world. Help us, God, to really and truly trust your power and the power of the resurrection of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.